You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Scott. Well, I am Eric Barton and I am... uh, the guy who gets to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And so I am delighted that you're here. I am convinced, we are confident, we really believe this, that you are not here by accident. That God and his sovereignty and his grace and his goodness has divinely directed your steps. That you would be here this morning. Whether whether or not you feel like that's true or not, we are convinced that there are no dinks, And that God is divinely directing you to hear from him this morning, which reminds me of a great story. Uh, A pastor named Roland Mills had a family in his congregation, and the father of this family had passed away. And it was a wealthy, very affluent family, and someone in the family invited Pastor Mills to attend the reading of the last will and testament just in case a portion of the estate was left to the church. And so it's not really what Pastor Mills wanted to do. It's always a little bit awkward and sometimes tense, but he decided, sure, he would go on behalf of the church as an agent and a representative of the church just in case. And I don't know if you've ever been to one of these readings. They are about as exciting as watching paint dry. And Pastor Mills tells a story that he sat there and the reading of the will and testament by this attorney was the most boring dry, non-tonal changing thing he had ever heard in his whole life. And everybody gathered was on the edge of their seats, leaning forward, just drinking it in. Why? He said it struck him that all of these people were gathered in desperate anticipation to hear something that would mean they had received some sort of blessing That would forever change their lives. And it struck him, and it strikes me as I hear that story. Do we come together, when we come together, when we gather, regardless of how effective the communicator is, regardless of how exquisite the music is, and it is, are we on the edge of our seats, eagerly anticipating, fervently expectant that God himself, God, the eternal, the ancient of days, the pantocrator, he who has all power, knowledge, wisdom, and might, that he would actually speak to us. All summer long we've been in this series, this discussion of the pursuit of wisdom. How do we as a finite species, how do we adopt the mindset and the perspective and the eyesight that God has? How do we begin to see the world through God's eyes, which now finally brings us to the month of August, where we want to spend these four Sundays in August talking about who we are and what we're doing here, specifically as a campus and a congregation, as a church. How do we gather? Why do we gather? Maybe that's not the kind of thing you really think about that regularly. You just show up and we do a thing and you sort of have some things going on in your own life, I'm sure, and you tolerate me and you tolerate this and that, and then you go off about your business. But there really is a whole lot of thought 
and prayer and planning and preparation and even pastoral consideration for the people that God will bring into this space. So who are we? What are we doing here? Why are we gathered as we are gathered? This morning I want to take us to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah might be one of those books that requires your table of contents. That's okay. There's no shame in that. There's, there's grace for that too. Nehemiah, it's somewhere in the back after Deuteronomy and before you get to Matthew. Just keep flipping. I'll hear the pages. I'll receive that as an honor. Just go ahead. Find Nehemiah, and I want to invite you to go to chapter 8. Now, Nehemiah is not a book that a lot of people spend a whole lot of devotional time studying. We know a lot about it. When I was a kid, and later even in seminary, we were uh, taught how to know all the books of the Bible by these wonderful little clip art word pictures. The walk through the Bible seminar and all of that teaching content. Nehemiah, well, it was a phonetic tool. And so Nehemiah showed a guy kneeling, because his name was Nehemiah, and he was in front of a wall. Because Nehemiah knelt and he built the wall. And so that's how I always remember Nehemiah as this really cheesy, goofy little clip art of this guy kneeling in front of a wall. That's one of the things that Nehemiah did. But let me give a little bit of a backstory. I want to tell the story of how we get to Nehemiah 8. So, so bear with me for just a minute because I think the story really does set the stage for what's going to happen in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're talking about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel that has started almost like a bad joke. Like the world is in shambles. Half of human history has occurred by the time we get through Genesis 11. Did you know that? Half of human history has occurred from Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. Now we get to Genesis 12, and the world is an absolute flaming train wreck. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create for myself a people, a new nation. It's going to be started by this dude living in Iraq who's an over-the-hill moon worshiper. Great plan, God. Always a good idea to start a new nation with an over-the-hill pagan moon worshiper whose wife happens to be barren. This will be great. His name's Abram. Brings Abram into the promised land after a long, sordid story. You know all this. Uh, The patriarchs begin Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then they have to go down to Egypt for 400 years of purging until the sin of the land of Canaan ripens sufficiently that God will come and judge those pagan nations. Israel comes back in on the conquest under Joshua, and they live in the land, and under the judges, they, I think the soundtrack goes like this. They don't do so great. And they begin to adopt and assimilate the pagan ways of their surroundings, and they begin to practice idolatry. So much so that in 722 B.C., the ten northern kingdoms, because the monarchy has been split, the northern kingdoms to the north and the two southern kingdoms to the southern tribes to the south. In 722, the Assyrian nation comes in, the most brutal, vile, abominable people on the planet at that time, the meanest motor scooters that there ever were. They take off the ten northern tribes into exile. A little while later, in 586 B.C., there's a series of exiles that begin as the, the Babylonian king under Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes off the southern tribes. And so they are lost. Israel is broken. It is shattered. And they sit the two southern tribes of Judah in exile for 70 years. But God begins to stir because this is what God does in the midst of hopelessness. And some of you are sitting in this room right now in the midst of hopelessness and darkness and doubt. 
But God begins to stir of all things in a pagan king from Persia named Cyrus. And he sends this guy named Zerubbabel, great name, Zerubbabel back to Israel, and he begins to rebuild the temple. Now, it's not like he's starting from a clean slate where there's just a nice, open, flat field. No, it's, it's, it's a complete wreck. There's rubble and rabble everywhere. And so he has to do a whole lot of demolition and clearing, and he begins to rebuild the temple, this Zerubbabel. It took Solomon seven years to build the glory of Israel, the greatest structure that was known in antiquity, the temple of Israel in Jerusalem. Under Solomon, it took seven years. Zerubbabel comes back, and he's got like four breadsticks and a tinker toy, and it takes him 20 years. And then this thing looks like I built it. It's barely standing. It's got no doors or windows. <laughs> it's sort of a mockery. And everyone's making fun of it. Even the old people who remembered Solomon's temple, they come back and they're like, no, for real, y'all, what's that? The te- you, you're, you're calling that a temple? No, 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 no. That's a thing. I don't know what it is, but it looks more like the Dillard's on Broadway. That's not a temple. That's horrible. Well, a few years later, this guy named Nehemiah is sent back. He hears that the wall is in disrepair and that the city is vulnerable. And so Artaxerxes, for whom Nehemiah is the cupbearer, he gets a stirring in his heart and he wants to go back. And Artaxerxes miraculously doubles his resource request and sends him back. And he begins to build the wall so that their city will have protection. And this is about 450-ish B.C. I'm not going to be exact on that. But it's, it's beginning to draw the attention and the ire of all the other locals. And so they're being made fun of. They're being ridiculed. They're being, they're being uh, distracted in their efforts. But in 54 days, Nehemiah and his team miraculously rebuild this wall with a tool in one hand to build and a weapon in another hand to defend themselves. They rebuild this wall in 54 days. That's an incredible project, to rebuild a city wall in 54 days, one-handed. That's pretty impressive. And then finally, this guy named Ezra shows up. Now, Ezra is a scribe. He's a priest. I love the way Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, describes Ezra. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes, and rules in Israel. Now, candidly and transparently, I will tell you that Nehemiah became a little bit of a mascot of the Western church in the late 20th century and early part of the 21st century because Nehemiah is a visioneer. He's a CEO. He's a corporate general. He gets things done. He governs. He rules. He leads. And many, many of my contemporaries have tried to model their ministry after Nehemiah, and I think that's great except for the fact that I ain't no Nehemiah, not even close. Can't lead my way out of a wet paper sack, and most of you know this. But Ezra, Ezra, he's my guy. All Ezra wanted to do was teach God's word to God's people so that God's people would rightly give honor to God. This is how Ezra walks on the scene. Ezra gets on the scene about 90 years after the first wave of exiles come back from from Babylon in the east under Zerubbabel. 
Now, after a time, Nehemiah has to go back to Persia to spend some time with Artaxerxes as part of the agreement. And during that time, the city's been rebuilt, not awesomely, but it's, it's up. The wall is up and the temple is up. Life in Jerusalem, against all odds, begins to sort of return to normal. They've done it. They have reestablished themselves as a people, as a nation. Prosperity begins to occur, which is sort of the kiss of death. Nehemiah leaves for about 13 years, we think, and during that time, the rails come completely off. I'm going to read now from the book of Malachi to just give you an idea of what's happening in Jerusalem once Nehemiah leaves. The city's rebuilt, the wall is up, the temple is up. Watch how the people respond to the miracle of God's provision. Malachi chapter 1, the final book in the Old Testament, beginning in chapter 6. This is what God is saying through the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel. Why is there a prophet? Prophets only ever show up on the scene when the priests have failed. The priests are supposed to be those who point people to the sacrifice. That's the job of a priest, both Old Testament and New, to point people to the sacrifice. And the priests have become corrupt and they have failed. And so God sends a prophet. We find out later that after a while, even the prophets are corrupt. This is what God says to the people through Malachi. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then, if then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? It's a terrible thing when God, the sovereign, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God, has to say, where is my honor? What is honor? Honor, you might say, is rightly directed glory. When I give you honor, I am properly, appropriately directing glory at you. And God says, where, where is mine? Where is that? See, as a species, we were created to honor. That's what he's saying there in verse 6. A son honors his father, a servant honors his master, and I am God. Where is my honor? And they say, well, how have we dishonored you? And God answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. They were taking the absolute worst of their flocks. And they were offering them up as sacrifices before God. Not the pure and spotless lambs without blemish. No, they were getting like the three-eyed platypus and throwing that thing up on the, on the altar. Going, That's good enough. That thing used to have a pulse. It'll burn. Good enough. God says, that's, that's not, no, no, that's not okay. That's not good enough. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Now, he doesn't mean specifically Nehemiah there, but you wouldn't offer that to the mayor of the city, to the governor of the state. How dare you offer that to me, the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
things have gotten really, really bad in a very short time. See, prosperity has a way of doing that to us. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It's going to happen one way or the other. Maybe not today, but it is going to occur. Now, you have the opportunity and the option of deliberately participating in that even now. Verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness is this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? You got roadkill and you served it up as the banquet feast. That's disgusting. It's not good enough, God says. Verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, meaning I deserve honor and my name will be feared among the nations. This is what's happened during Nehemiah's absence. But then Nehemiah comes back from his dealings with the new kings of Persia. And we're taken finally to Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to see renewal. We're going to see authentic restoration. We're going to see reform. So that's the situation, I believe, that Nehemiah comes back into. Things are materially prosperous, but spiritually derelict. So, Nehemiah chapter 8. I'll just read through this and we'll comment as we go. Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but as many of you know, about 40 years ago, something happened in our nation at the water gate that forever changed our nation. Well, about 2,400 years ago, something also happened at a water gate that reformed and revived a nation. All of the people have now gathered together. They recognize that something's amiss. They are, they are hollow and shallow and empty. Now, the end of Nehemiah chapter 7 is going to tell us that there are as many as 50,000 people that are gathered here at the water gate. All the people gathered as one man. There is a unanimity of purpose. That does not mean they are all identical in every thought, word, and deed. No, no, no. But they do have unity. There is a unanimity of purpose. They all know why they are there. They all have the same eager expectation. They are gathered, 50,000 as one man. And there's, uh, they're gathered into the square before the water gate. Now that's fascinating. This is not inside the temple court. It's not in Solomon's colonnade. This is on the east side of the temple. It's the commercial center. It's the economic hub. This is where trade and business was happening. This is where the people gathered together, right in the hub of what is happening in the city. And I wonder how many times do we try to separate and distinguish between our commercial lives and our weekend, Sunday, 9 to noon lives. The nation of Israel, 50,000 strong, gathers together for the Watergate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. I love this verse. 
It's not Nehemiah's idea. In fact, Nehemiah begins to sort of fade from the forefront. It's the book that's written with his name on it. But for the rest of the book of Nehemiah, he doesn't show up again. Oh, his name is mentioned four times, but it's third person talking about something else that's going on. He's not in the book anymore. He fades to the back, and now Ezra steps to the fore. And the people ask Ezra, bring us the law of Moses. We want to hear from God. It's their idea. I love that. And notice they say to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. These people all understood and believed that God had written the Pentateuch through Moses. They understood that this was God's inerrant and inspired and authoritative word. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Watch this. Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Men, women, and children. If you're making this step up, you would not include this. Because in antiquity, as you well know, only men were considered full-fledged, fully-orbed people. But here, the men and the women, and all who could understand. What does that mean? It means children. The children were present. Now, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but this is one of the reasons why we do what we do here at Bethel. We do involve children in our expression of worship. In the teaching of God's word, in the singing of God's truth, we involve our children because it has always been God's plan. Always been God's plan that children learn the faithfulness of God from their families, and that those families learn the truths of God from the priests, the elders, the teachers, the leaders. Many years ago, we preached through the book of Judges, and we decided that the recipe for disaster of any civilization is when families fail to teach their children of the faithfulness of God. And so, principally, from the book of Nehemiah, one of the reasons we do not have a separate children's church is because we want our children to see how the elders and the deacons and the other adults and their families, how they worship together. That they would be trained and taught this is what worship is like. They would sing truths because our worship informs our theology and our theology informs our worship. I've heard it said, well, what we need to do is just entertain kids with puppets until they're 16 and then they'll come back to Jesus. (laughs) No. Any of you who are parents of 16-year-olds know that they're not looking for better puppets. They're looking for a set of car keys to get as far from this place as they possibly can. And we as parents have the opportunity and the obligation to pray with broken hearts that God would seize their hearts and do for them what he has done for us. That's our parental responsibility, not to keep them chipper on a Sunday morning until we can make it to Arby's. Sorry, that was a side little ramble there. Back to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. This is in October, uh, September-October time. They're all gathered together for the feast of booths. Booths, not booze. This is not Texas Motor Speedway. They're gathered together for the ancient Israelite feast of booths, Sukkot, where they live in little booths because they're starting to realize we need the presence of God. He brought our forefathers out of Egypt, out of exile in the Exodus. We need that same thing. So they have gathered together for the feasts. 
verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You think I go long. <laughs> oh, I've heard your grumblings in the desert. I know. I know. You think I go long. Listen, they start at sunrise and they go till noon. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't get the sense that he simply stood there and read monotone the entire Torah, the entire five books of the Pentateuch. No. More than likely, and we'll find out more about this in a moment, he's reading specifically, I think, from the book of Deuteronomy, reading the, the covenant treaty between Israel and God. And he's going to be flanked by 13 other dudes that are probably taking their turn as well reading from this. But I get it. Sometimes just hearing a person read from God's Word can feel a little bit monotonous. I get it. But perhaps that's because we're setting our ears to hear the wrong thing. I love this story. One of my heroes in the faith, a guy named J. Vernon McGee, tells a story about one day after church. He was standing at the back, which is one of the reasons I never do that because I don't want to hear things like this. He's standing at the exit doors of the church, and he overhears two elderly women talking. And the first woman says, Man, that preacher sure does preach a long time. And the other woman corrects her and says, actually, no, it just seems like a really long time. I've been there. I know. But perhaps we are basing our experience on how winsome the communicator is or if it happened to meet a specific symptom of the issues of my life. These people were gathered together to hear from God. I love this in the middle of verse 3. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I love the fact that this is included. Ezra is kind of saying, oh, it was one of those moments. It's just one of those times. It doesn't happen really, really often. But every now and then you can tell that the people gathered are hearing from God, and they are attentive, and they're wanting to hear God speak. Ezra says, this was one of those times. Verse 4, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. So this was not, as it might have seemed, a completely spontaneous event. There was enough planning and preparation in this deal that they had time to build an elevated platform on which 14 guys could stand. So it's not just going with the ghost and shooting from the hip. This was a pre-ordained, well-thought-out gathering of these people. 14 people are going to be standing on this platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matahiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Hashpadana, what a great name. Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. Why are these names in here? Who cares? God never forgets a name. So every time I preach this passage, every time I teach this text, I read those hard-to-pronounce names as a reminder. God never forgets a name. If he hasn't forgotten Hashpadana, he hasn't forgotten yours. And he hasn't. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. In value, in quality, in rank? No, he's literally above them. 
because they built this elevated platform. Why? Because there is a principle here. When we say, thus says the Lord, the people are to gather in a quiet submission to the prophetic utterance of God's word because this is God's word and God is speaking. It is not my voice. This is why we don't have a dialogue on Sunday mornings. That's a different context. There's great times for that. But this is where we sit expectantly asking God to speak. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. This verse gives me goosebumps. They had asked for the scribe to bring Torah, God's instruction what God is like, what he has done, who he has declared them to be. They asked to hear it, and he begins to read. What does it sound like when 50,000 people stand in silence? Now, I confess, I wrestled back and forth with this. As I read Nehemiah 8, do I have all of us stand? Well, that seemed a little bit contrived. But at the same time, it is a little bit odd that we're all sitting here listening to how all the people stood when they heard God's word read. But I want to say to you, this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. There are times when God's word is read in the Bible and people are seated. Jeremiah chapter 36, Jeremiah tells his scribe Baruch, I want you to go to temple and hear the word. And Baruch goes, and the scripture is very clear to tell us that he sits down. So that's okay. Luke chapter 10, Mary is hearing Jesus. Jesus, teach. She does not stand next to him. She sits and drinks it in. So these things are not prescriptive. They are, in fact, descriptive of what happened. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And I love how this starts. Verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord. What does it mean to bless someone? It means to infuse or inject or deposit joy. <laughs> this is not a priestly fail. Malachi 1, the priests were failing miserably. Not this guy. Oh, not this E. Ezra blessed God. What does that mean? It means he gave him honor. He properly directed glory and said, Lord, this is about you. This is what Ezra does. Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. Yes, verily, you'll betcha. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This is why I think Ezra is reading from Deuteronomy specifically 29 to 31, the, the, the second telling of the covenant that he makes with them. And Ezra reads from this. And they know that there is a sin problem, that it is their own disobedience, their own drifting, their own depravity that has got them in this state of dereliction. So they hear the word say, you must be faithful and obedient. And what do they say? Amen, amen. Yes, yes, you're right. And something has to have gone off inside them that says, uh-oh. We, uh, we, hmm. we, we can't do the stuff that he just read. All of the things that he just described in Deuteronomy, we can't do. We were given prosperity miraculously, and clearly within 13 years, we screwed it up royally. Hmm. 
And so there must have been in them a kindling, a desire for something more, a better system. One who would come later, who would in fact perfectly fulfill the demands of the law because they themselves could not. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's a whole lot of holy Pilates happening right here. First they're seated, then they jump up, then they raise their hands, then they bow their faces to the ground. There's, there's some experiential involvement here. It's okay. Some of you raise your hands. Some of you see people raise their hands and go, oh my gosh, do they have a question? What's the deal? It's okay. It's okay. We can respond bodily, experientially. It's totally fine. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites. What's going on here? This is how I like to break down this passage. First, you got Ezra, the scribe, the teacher, the priest, pointing people to the sacrifice, giving God honor. Then you've got enthusiasm. The people are eager. Now you've got explanation. You've got Ezra. You've got enthusiasm. Now you've got explanation. These are 13 Levites, trained teachers in the law, and they are dispersed out and among the people. Remember, there's 50,000 people. And yet these 13 guys, and again, their names are mentioned as well, are distributed and sort of scattered among the people so that when something is read from the platform, these guys say, stop, do you understand what he just said? Do you understand what this means? It's one thing to to know what God's word says. That's very good. It's better to know what it means. Now, was God's word clear? Perhaps. There's a good chance that what was being read from the Pentateuch was being read in Hebrew. And all of the people gathered did not speak Hebrew at this time. They've been away. And perhaps most of them are speaking Aramaic. So some have thought, well, these Levites are translating it from Hebrew into Aramaic. I don't think so. Maybe. But I think more than that, they are doing the explanation. Let me make sure you understand. So were these Levites necessary? Apparently so. The people gathered could hear God's word read, but God's plan and his model has always been that other people who have training assist in explaining the the deep impact and meaning of God's word, which is why here at Bethel, across three campuses, we do have live local preaching and teaching, not a flat screen with some guy sitting several miles away. This is why we have life groups and men's small groups and women's Bible studies and all these different sorts of of contexts in which there is somebody who is there to help us understand that which we have just read. While we have elders and deacons, because God's plan has always been that God's people teach God's word to God's people. It's always been his plan. That's why we do what we do. All these guys helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So we've had Ezra the scribe, we've had their enthusiasm, we've had explanation, and now finally in verse 8 we're going to have exposition. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. Boy, that's a hard one. That's really a hard one, I admit it. Sometimes it is, it is hard. 
it is difficult to make God's word clear. We talked about this a couple years ago. We were studying through 1 Peter. We got to chapter 3. We had all these wonderful passages about the watchers shacking up with earth chicks back in the time of Genesis. Like, whoa, that's not clear. I know. It was tricky, but we got through it. Part of my job is to do my best to make unclear things clear. And this is what Ezra is doing, pointing people to the sacrifice. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense. And let me make sure you get the whole context, the whole, the whole contour of everything that's going on here. This is what Ezra and the scribes and the Levites were doing, so that the people understood the reading, because that's the point, so that the people would understand everything that's being said. It's such a great, succinct verse to explain why we teach and we preach the way we do. We simply open God's word and we say, this is what it says. And by virtue of what it says, this is what it means. This is why we should care. And this is how it should apply to our lives. So is this just one more sermon where someone wags a finger at you and says, you should read your Bible more? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But not entirely. This is a message we believe from God's word to help us understand why we gather as we do about and around God's word. Because, as he says in Malachi 1, God is a good king and he will receive honor. His name will be magnified among the nations. And the way a people who have had a tendency to drift into their own depravity, the way they are restored to give God honor is through his word. James chapter 1, verse 21 says that the word of God has been inscribed on our hearts. It is living. It is engraved on our hearts. And so the, when the living word that is inscribed on our hearts comes into proximity with a written word, it changes us. There's a reverberation there. Whether we know it, feel it, understand it, or appreciate it or not, that's how God moves in and through his people is through his word. So I want to be very, very clear. The application for this passage from Malachi 1 and for Nehemiah 8, the application is absolutely not as follows. Sin is bad. Stop it. It's not the application. It's all that people could hope for in the Old Testament is to know that their sin was bad and that something had to die for it. And so they started trying to skirt the issue and cheat here and there and cut corners. But we live on this side of the cross. Sin is still the problem, but we live in the age in which that sin has been dealt with. Even though there are a species called people who want to give honor to God by throwing up blind broken, lame animals as a sacrifice, we have a God who instead sends himself, sends his son, a perfect, spotless lamb without blemish who takes away the sin of the world. So when we gather, it is not in hopes that God might do something one day. It is in celebration, commemoration, contemplation of the fact that he has. We are the kind of people who fail to bring God what he deserves, and we are, and we always will be until his return. He himself has supplied that which we never could. So we gather to say, you are a good king. You are worthy of our honor. And because of that, would you now speak to us? So I just want to give four very, very quick implications of what this means of how we gather together. 
very, very quickly, and then we'll move on. What does Nehemiah 8 teach us of how we should come together? The first is this. We should gather expectantly. We should gather expectantly. Now, hear me. That puts an enormous amount of spiritual pressure on me and the other staff and the elders of this church because I have so many friends and family who have walked away from church and said, I'm never going back because it's pointless. I go, I hear some stuff, they say some things. It means nothing. It makes no difference in my life. I'm done with it. I'd rather sleep in. So I get it. There, there are times when church doesn't seem to scratch any particular itch, and we feel that. At the same time, we want to be very cautious to never produce some sort of performance that makes you happy so that you come back. Because there's going to come several Sundays when we don't say something that makes you happy or you don't particularly like that song mix, and you're oh, I didn't like that. So we don't want to create consumers either, but we do want to prayerfully plan and thoughtfully prepare a worship service in which God speaks to the hearts and minds of people. Part of that is on you and on me, all of us, to gather expectantly. What if, just like Roland Mills talked about, people gathering to hear the reading of a last will and testament, what if we really just changed our minds, rethought our thinking? That's what repentance is, changing our minds. And we said, I cannot wait to go to church because I think God's going to speak to me this morning. What if our children saw that mindset modeled in us? Little Bobby, little Susie, I, I can't wait. It's Sunday. Guys, it's Sunday. Yahweh might speak directly to us and through us by his word. Katie, bar the door. We're going. So gather expectantly. We see that modeled in the people of Israel. How much more so now that Messiah has come? We don't have to offer sacrifices. We don't have to, to give in to our cravings to cut corners and offer blind animals. The ultimate sacrifice has come. So gather expectantly. Number two, listen attentively. You see what the people of Israel did as Ezra began to, to, to read? There's none, there's none of this. Oh, I see you. I know. I got you. Some of you, this is the best sleep you get all week. Praise God that you're resting. Marvelous. Great. But because they had gathered expectantly, in unanimity of purpose, they listened as if it mattered. And I'm not saying that you should listen to me. Please do not misunderstand that. But they listened attentively as if God would speak through his word. Because it is God's infallible, inerrant, authoritative, inspired, holy word that we go through as we gather together. Number three, respond properly. So they gathered expectantly. They listened attentively. They responded properly. They said, yes, that. That's what our God is like. That's what our God has done. That's what our God has said that we now are. And they said, amen and amen. You know what? It's okay. You can say amen every now and then. And you're not going to freak me out. I'm all about the Amen. But more than that, that we would hear it and we would respond with our lives. Now, they literally, physically bowed low with their faces to the ground. For some of you, bowing low with your face to the ground means you stop cheating on your expense reports. It means you don't allow yourself to be home alone in front of a computer when your spouse is not there. 
means you stop using those harsh words of anger and shame on your children. They responded properly because God had spoken to them. And finally, fourth, depart joyfully. (laughs) Gather expectantly, listen attentively, respond properly, and depart joyfully. I pray to God that when we leave this place this morning, we do not walk out like we just got hit in the face with a soiled diaper. Like, that was church again. No, do you see what they're doing? They are departing joyfully because they have heard from God, but not just heard from God. They have heard from God by his word among other people. They're in it together. That's what church is supposed to be about. That's why we gather together. And let me say again, we live in an age in which this good king has himself supplied the sacrifice. He has removed the dividing wall between himself and us and between one another. That's the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to remove or to redeem man to himself and to one another. It's a free gift, but it was a priceless, priceless cost. This morning we get to celebrate communion. I'm going to invite the guys who are going to serve if they would come forward. We get to celebrate communion in which we observe the perfect sacrifice. This Jesus who fulfilled the demands of the law, that is perfection, who himself was the ultimate sacrifice, paying the wages of sin, which is death. We don't have to hope that our best is good enough because newsflash, it ain't. And it's never going to be. But his best is enough. And that is the thing that draws us together. Everybody in this room, whether you know this or not, by nature are natural enemies. We couldn't stand one another for very long apart from the finished work of Christ. But because of who he is and what he has done, we are now eternally brothers and sisters. We're family. You don't get to choose your family. You show up at the Thanksgiving table because it's your family. And you bless your family by showing up. We're going to have these elements, and let me explain what's going to happen. If you will please hold the elements until everyone gets theirs. If there is anything at all between you and the Lord, now is the time to speak the same words as him and agree with him that it is outside the character of his son Jesus and ask that he would apply it to the finished work of his son on the cross. If there is anything between you and anybody else, I'm going to ask you to clear that up as well. Go to that person. Don't take the elements today and deal with that. If it's a parent, a friend, a coworker, whatever that might be, let nothing be between you and the receipt of this observation of the finished work of Jesus. Take the elements, hold on to them. We'll take them at the end. If you're a believer this morning, we invite you to participate. If you are in good standing with the Lord, we invite you to participate. You don't have to be a member of this church. We would just ask that if you're not a believer this morning, Just allow the elements to pass. No one's going to look at you or say anything. Just observe as we commemorate and contemplate and celebrate the finished work of our Lord. Let me pray for us. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.